0: Generations Church exists to glorify God in our community, to make disciples of Jesus, and to multiply churches so that the next generation is equipped to glorify God better than we did. Welcome to the Generations Church podcast. My name is Rob Samuelson. I'm an elder at Generations Church, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and the lead pastor at Generations, Jeff Luddington. How are you doing today, Jeff?
1: I'm well this morning, man. I'm looking forward to this. I think I hope—well, okay. I'm looking forward to it. Yes. One. Uh, Two— I think we can make it um, not too nerdy and understandable. Uh, and then I was gonna say, I hope, I hope we can do that. I hope we can achieve talking about this topic in a way that will make things clearer for people.
0: Right, the understandable part I'm good with. I'm not sure if we can make it so it's not nerdy, I think. Yeah, well. I, if you love the Bible, it's not nerdy. So <laughs> those of you that think it's nerdy, obviously don't love the Bible. So we're looking at uh, another question So we are in our series on questions from the classroom. For those of you that are new, uh, Jeff and I both teach high school Bible classes at a uh, local high school, and I've been teaching for 13 years and have been hearing questions from students for that time, and there seems to be a consistent um, type of question that is asked. You are new this year teaching Reformed Doctrine, and you wrote down a lot of questions students had. So this one is a big one. And what we're finding is a lot of these questions are not just questions students have. They're right. questions that, you know, peers have, that adults have, that people that come to church just want to know, hey, how do you how do you deal with this? So here's today's uh, two questions. They basically are linked together. The first part of it, what parts of the Bible are meant to be taken literally? Or the second part, is everything in the Bible supposed to be believed 100%? So when we talk about literal, we're saying as you read it, when you read it, right. you take it exactly as it's written. And I think most of us would say, in order to take it as it's written, you have to know what genre it's written mm-hmm. in. right? So we're going to focus on one of those genres today that maybe might be a little bit more difficult to understand what to take literally, what to take as images. Um, so basic genres, we there's historic gospel letters. Um, things that are historical, things that are filled with facts, things we obviously read it like we would read a history book or something like that, take the facts literally, um, the redemptive plan of God in there. Uh, The books of wisdom, right? We would say a lot of those are truisms. If you do this, this will likely happen. Not a promise, but will likely happen. One thing kind of leads to another. Um, Next week, we're going to be talking about Revelation, and we spent a couple weeks before this. And so we'll focus on that next week, but apocalyptic writing. And so we'll leave that till then. But we're going to focus a little bit today on prophetic writing. When you read prophecies, a lot of times there's a a mixture of images and and statements that seem like they're true. So when you are looking at prophetic writing, how do you know what to take literally and what is just an image?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I um, I think parsing out apocalyptic from prophetic, because apocalyptic is by nature prophetic, but it's all... Functionally, it's all future-looking if it's apocalyptic, right? Uh, Where prophetic is not all future-looking, and I I think that, uh, and and let me qualify that, future-looking, right? Um, Prophetic texts, prophets, written by prophets, the stories of their journeys and what God said, um, most of the time had its fulfillment in their day, right? The apocalyptic literature, not necessarily true, but for, you know, 90 whatever percent of all the prophetic writing prophets were writing things that happened in their day and so a prophet is defined as one who uh, and this is an old testament office uh, carried on in the new testament but uh, this was someone called by god to speak god's word it was typically to god's people not always we'll use an example that's the exception of the rule today But they would speak to God's people call God's people out towards justice holiness righteousness God's plan direction things like that things They actually lived out I want to use a quote today um, And it's a longer quote by a man named Sam Storms He is uh, part of our acts 29 church planting network. He is a great leader He wrote a book called kingdom come and we're going to put a link to that book in the show notes Uh, But I want to break this quote up into into pieces Uh, But he has something amazing to say on uh, prophetic writing. He says, many who study the biblical prophecy often fall into one of two camps. So his first camp, he says, on the one hand, there are those who see prophetic texts as providing us with something of a crystal ball through which we can ascertain specific details about what the future holds. He likens them to blueprints for a new home that provide the specs and dimensions concerning their future home right right down to the smallest of details. So a a blueprint is not just an image You get to draw away from what you want. It is specific. It is measured. It is accurate And if it's not accurate your home is all jacked, right? And so Some people see prophetic texts to that level of detail and accuracy even though they're reading about images so this would be
0: someone who is reading about say, the mark of the beast mm-hmm. and looking at the newspaper, looking at the daily news and saying, OK, this is this is it. Right. If we get this, if you take this, if you. Right. And so they're they're looking at, um, you know, I, I've looked into Revelation and have people say, well, this is pertaining to this particular helicopter or tank that's right. going to be coming and fighting.
1: Yeah. And I, th- I think an example we use in Revelation often is trying to think back 2000 years to when John writes that trying to describe events today like a helicopter, right? What would you see? You'd see this amazingly loud winged beast or whatever, right? An airplane, whatever. And, and so some see that and, and they're trying to give this blueprint level detail in events when John is actually describing imagery, right? And so the way to do that is to try and find specific matches today and the problem with that is every era of the church tries to do that in their day so in the 1980s the you know the antichrist was russia and communism and then throughout the terrorism stuff in the 2000 oh, it must be al-qaeda or whatever else and so we're constantly trying to superimpose our media into the imagery and get a one-for-one match so that's one side right uh Sam Storms goes on to say this. He says, on the other hand, there are those who read prophecy as if it were a stained glass window designed to paint in broad brushstrokes the general principles that will govern how God brings this world to its consummation in Christ. Right? So on the other side of this, the, there's the literalists who are trying to um, you know, kind of shoehorn media into imagery from Revelation or Daniel or whatever else, Right. Or, it, it, Isaiah, it could be anything. On the other side of that are those who are like, hey, it's just supposed to be a picture that kind of gives you some broad details and causes you to feel something that about the future, right? Or about the present.
0: Right, so it makes me kind of think about stained glass windows in churches. A lot of times you'll right. see one window with a lot of different images on it. Sometimes you look at them for a while and you understand there's a common theme, right? They're all pointing to the resurrection. They're all pointing to Jesus' baptism. Together, it doesn't tell the whole story. But together, it does say, hey, here's what this is all leading to.
1: Yeah, and, and if you're looking at a stained glass window, we have stained glass at our church, and, and uh, there is a section that is given over to resurrection themes. Uh, if you look at that, the, the images, because it's stained glass, right? It is, by nature, solid colors broken up by thick black lines, right? And so it's not super detailed. It's not supposed to be. It's a specific medium for art. And so you can look at it and see the things that are in it. Um, But if you walk away from that, and you take one thing and someone else takes another idea away from that, they can't both be right. So there's got to be a way to harness in that side. And Sam Storms goes on, he draws some conclusion about this. And he says this, he says, Although there's a measure of legitimacy in both approaches, so the very, very specific detailed version and the very, very broad version, right? He says, though there's a level of legitimacy in both approaches, neither perspective is entirely adequate. Whereas one tends to demand an almost objective photographic precision from passages that are largely symbolic, the other can easily drift into a slippery subjectivism that treats the Bible like an impressionist work of art. I'm not a big art guy, but... I've been to art galleries. I've seen art in you know, museums, and I hear people talk about how it evokes an emotion. Specific art, especially impressionists like this example uses, and I don't get it. Like I'm just not that guy. I haven't studied it long enough. Given myself to it, uh, but people will say that, but they'll walk away with different interpretations. And then the other side. So there's, there's, you know, there's one side that overdoes it on details, and everything must fit. And then there's this other one that leaves you kind of how it makes you feel is okay. Both, he says, are, are super challenging, right? You, you can't keep shoehorning things into this image that doesn't fit, and you can't let it just be about how it makes you feel, right? There's gotta be a better way. So when you're
0: reading prophecy, right, he said both camps have l- some legitimacy in them, right. but not completely adequate. So how do you make sure as you're reading it, you don't, you don't fall to
1: one extreme or the other? Right, and, and that's, I think that's the key. And uh, the term is authorial intent, or what the author intended to communicate. He draws a conclusion here. He says, one can interpret the prophets as speaking literally, if by that we mean that they intended to communicate about, uh, sorry, that what they intended to communicate will actually and historically come to pass. The key then becomes ascertaining authorial intent. So in other words, when an author is writing something, what was the author thinking they were communicating? What did Isaiah think he was communicating to the people in Judah and Israel as he was writing? Now, Isaiah's writing, prophetic in nature, most of it, 66 chapters long, we used an example not long ago about the crucifixion, right? Some of it was clearly about a savior to come, right? Hey, God is doing this and he needs a people he's saving a people and a savior is coming and he paints a a great portrayal of that savior Some through the crucifixion some through an eternal reign But the majority of what isaiah writes is to a people in fact, he writes about their deliverance from persia uh, Their captivity in babylon which ends up being delivered from persia as nation takes over nation But he writes to the people a great example is a very common verse around christmas time is the virgin birth right? That uh, a, a virgin will conceive and bear a child, blah, 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 right? We know that that is fulfilled in Christ. It actually is humanly fulfilled as a young woman who ends up gets married, a virgin at the time, ends up having a child with Isaiah. It's the very next verses it actually comes to pass. No, it's not a virgin birth like Jesus, but it is a virgin currently who is going to conceive, which will happen with Isaiah, and then be the fulfillment in history of that passage. When Isaiah wrote it, I don't think Isaiah is thinking this is about a Messiah to come. He's thinking God is saying this is what's happening and then he writes how it's fulfilled. Is there a bigger narrative? Yes, Jesus becomes a part of that. But in these prophetic texts, there's an actual historical fulfillment and the people of his day understood the vast majority of it.
0: So why don't we look at it like an example of this? If you were going to read, um, I think we talked earlier, the book of Jonah, right? Yeah, a good example there's some history in there, mm-hmm. some things that can be taken literally. There's also a lot of images that, at the time, you don't really see, but later on they're clarified. Sure. So how would you use that as an example of what you've been talking about?
1: So Jonah's great, four chapters long. Most people know the story. Uh, most people, if they were going to tell you what Jonah's about, will tell you about the first three chapters, right? God tells Jonah go talk to Nineveh and tell them about, you know, the good news. And uh, the modern day term, like go share the gospel with them, right? Uh, but Jonah's a Jewish prophet who does not want anything to do with the Ninevites. They were their enemy, and they persecuted the Jewish people, right? And so God tells Jonah to go and proclaim uh, a message of repentance to them, and he doesn't want to because he doesn't want them to repent. So Jonah runs the other way, and the thing that most people know is, so Jonah ends up being thrown in the ocean. Uh, he would rather die than go do what God told him to do. And this big fish comes and swallows him up. It doesn't say whale; it says big fish, but think whale, right? And so he is consumed by this big fish and he lives inside. He's alive inside this fish for three days and During this time, he prays to God. He repents uh, And lo and behold the fish spits him out You might guess where he spits him out right in front of Nineveh, right? So God gets his way Jonah's going to Nineveh Jonah goes in proclaims the gospel Nineveh repents and most people leave the story there, right? But there's a fourth chapter and during that fourth chapter uh, Jonah goes up on a hillside Overlooking Nineveh and he sits down. He's frustrated. He's angry with God Because he didn't want to see the Ninevites come to faith, right? He wanted to see God like, you know smite them with fire and judgment and You know because they'd been a uh, they'd been a problem for Jonah and the people And so God causes this vine or think like a tree to kind of grow up around him and give him some shade And he kind of rests in that shade then God causes that vine to wither and die and Jonah's back to angry and God uses this chapter four if you will uh this last section to teach Jonah that listen you're more concerned with your own comfort than you are about the saving of tens of thousands of people down in Nineveh right these this whole massive city came to faith and you're concerned with your own comfort and so It is a prophetic text because Jonah is the story that God is using. It's actual historical. I believe a real fish really swallowed Jonah, a historical example where God gets his way and teaches Jonah a lesson that is going to be a lesson for all the Jewish people. Because at that point in time, the Jewish people were keeping the message to themselves, kind of like the church can get kind of internal and forget that we're supposed to take the message of Jesus outwardly.
0: Yeah, so this kind of seems like a a strange prophet, mm-hmm. right? That that Jonah is not taking God's word to God's people. He almost seems like a missionary, yeah. um, and there doesn't seem to be necessarily a point to redemptive history. Like, how do what does this have to do with with Jesus?
1: Yeah, so if every prophecy in Scripture and if every type and symbol, whether that be Passover or, you know, the atonement sacrifice is if everything points us forward to redemption in Jesus. And, and I'm not saying if, I'm saying it does, right? And if that, but if that's true, then Jonah has to fit that narrative, right? And so what happens is, if you were alive in the days of Jonah, or if you were Jonah, who actually captures this story for us, you might not understand the redemptive implications in the future, right? He probably... I would say just thought it was a message to him and to the people around him in that day but God preserves this message because it is also prophetic about Christ now we know that because Jesus tells us that right in Matthew 12 Jesus is teaching to some uh, talking to some religious leaders who say hey we want to see a sign from you and they're trying to get Jesus to dance like a you know kind of like perform for them right And Jesus says this he says an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign But no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah For just as Jonah was in three was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish So will the Son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth So Jesus takes this moment takes this this prophetic story right that was actual historical and Prophetic to the culture of the day and he says by the way There's more right just like he does when he sits with his disciples at passover. Hey, by the way, this is my body broken for you This is my blood shed for you, right? He gives more meaning meaning that they might not have seen in their day And so he says listen the only sign you're gonna see Is the sign of jonah Just like jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights So I too will be in the ground in the in the earth dead for three days and three nights Again, obviously and then rise again. So that's the sign you get to see You get to see my death and my resurrection, but he ties it into Jonah. He makes Jonah's story, which had actual historical, literal things go on in his day, a part of a big redemptive story that God has been telling all along.
0: So going back to the examples you gave at the beginning, when you're reading prophecy, right, there is the blueprint, there is the facts, there's the literal part of this, this actually happened to Jonah um and even Jonah didn't understand while he's in the belly of a giant fish that he is giving a great image of what Jesus is going to do so there's also that that image side so you're not okay. extreme on either side right you're right down the middle saying there's both
1: yeah and what i'm not trying to do is take Jonah and make it about our current media news cycle and trying to shoehorn modern day things into that like oh well it took 3 days for this to happen so it must be about this right What I'm doing is letting Scripture interpret Scripture for me. Jesus tells me how it fits the redemptive plan. I don't, and so it actually happened to to Jonah. Do I believe it's uh, a literal swallowed by a fish? I said yes, right? I don't think it's allegory. I think it's literal, right? And then Jesus tells us, hey, by the way, that literal story back there, that historical prophetic event that taught the people then I'm going to give you more meaning. It's going to teach you this. And so we get to read it with both lenses. We read it through Jonah's eyes, and we get the literal story. And then we get through Jesus' eyes, who gives us the part of redemptive history. Yeah, author's intent is critical for prophecy. What did the author mean when they said it? And then sometimes what we get is an apostle or Jesus or somebody also teaching us about a bigger, a, a, a bigger part of the story that it fits into. Great. So when we
0: sit down to read scripture, right, it's great to just sit down and just open up the Bible and read it. But a lot of times a little bit of research needs to go into it. What kind of book is it? What's the author trying to get across? And then some cross references. Did this come up again in the New Testament? What did they say about it there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I would just say this. If you read scripture like you would read a novel, right, where you just kind of get, you just kind of read and read and read and read and read, right? You'll get one thing out of it right? You'll get a, a broad picture of a, a broad short picture of what's going on, and maybe you'll pick up some meaning along the way. But if you sit down and really study Scripture, and I think that's the role of the Church, I think that's probably where many in the churches today are not doing very well, is teaching that, that kind of overview of all of Scripture and how it all ties together, how it all fits a redemptive plan. And it's not, you know, six steps to a better marriage, but this is how do you live in God's plan? and And, and it takes work. It takes effort. You have to understand Jonah in its context and you have to read Jesus as he teaches you more. But yeah, I would say, man, critical. Go back to the author's intent and that'll get the blueprint pieces out of the way. And then scripture will teach you how the imagery fits in something that may not yet be complete. It may be complete or it may not be. Great. So we're going to wrap it up right there. We thank you for
0: listening. Uh, Again, we release a new Questions from the Classroom episode every Tuesday. Uh, we hope you will share it with others, that you'll like it, subscribe to it, and uh, that you'll ask us some questions. If this brought up questions or if you have other questions, you can email us at questions at generations dot email. Uh, have a great blessed week and we'll see you or hear from you next week.
1: visit our website at ginfamily.church. G-E-N family.church. You can also follow our social media accounts at GinFamilyChurch.